Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff, and I am joined today by Linda Allen, who is a D.C.-based lawyer, uh, but for our purposes, uh, is interesting because he was a former uh, U.S. State Department secundi to the OSCE mission to Moldova. Uh, he spent five years there, um, working very closely with uh, the country's political elites and is probably uh, one of the best-informed uh, Moldova watchers here in Washington. Um, we're going to talk about Moldova's political transition, uh, what it means for U.S., Russia, and Europe, uh, and uh, for the future of the conflict in Transnistria. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Welcome back. Uh, I'm joined in the studio today by Lyndon Allen, who is uh, a lawyer in D.C. and probably one of the best informed people in town on Moldova, a country that we don't talk about around here quite uh, enough. Uh, Lyndon has just come back from Moldova, which uh, is undergoing a rather interesting political transition um, that we're going to be talking about today. So, Lyndon, thanks for joining us. Jeff, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Moldova has a new government, uh, and not only does it have a new government, but uh, it seems that some of the underlying tectonic plates uh, that have guided Moldova's political development over the last couple of, of decades have really shifted. What happened? What happened is a is a good question. Um, We've got to start somewhere. Sure. I, I mean, we can start if we go back um, roughly 10 years to the events of April 2009 that sort of set up the current political stage in Moldova for the past decade, um, which, you know, the, the 2009 events, which were sometimes called the Twitter revolution, although that's kind of a misnomer, um, led eventually to um, the rule for several years of a coalition called the Alliance for European Integration. Which and, may have been for European integration, but was defined by other things. Right. Eventually, the European integration slogans actually came to be, I would say, um, somewhat devalued uh, by their co-branding with some of the key figures of that alliance. And uh, that was a problem that was acknowledged um, you know, by European uh, diplomats themselves. And um, I what, think- What do you mean by co-branding? It's the phenomenon that occurs when you have people who come from Brussels uh, and Washington, for that matter, have photo ops on the main square, give speeches, interact with people for a short amount of time. And then those individuals in the country use those images to legitimize themselves. Meanwhile, within the country, these are folks like Vlad Filat and Vlad Plachetniuk. What I, what I, what maybe it may be a good place to start is, um, is just with the main cast of characters from that uh, stage uh, of politics that existed post-2009. So you still had the Communist Party, which ruled the country during the aughts under Vladimir Voronin. That party consistently polled into the 30s uh, and up to 40%, even after a, a year or two of the um, European alliance running the country. Um, you had the- And were they a real communist party? They were a party that was really a social democratic party and a party that actually in the second half of the aughts were, was the political force that sort of began Moldova's European integration process. And so even though a number of the people who were involved in that later kind of hewed to very pro-Russian and um, sort of affinity for Putin and Soviet nostalgia politics, you know, the, the policies that they actually pursued when they were governing did not really reflect that. So that was one political force that existed really until 2014. And then its mantle was taken up by the Socialist Party uh, under Igor Dodon, who had kind of defected from the Communist Party in 2011 with a couple of deputies. And then 
at that time, it was recently revealed, although this was, I think, generally known in kind of Kishino insider circles for a long time, was his party's, the Socialist Party's development was funded by Russia through um, non-transparent means. Uh, and they now are the more, uh, have sort of inherited the mantle um, of the default kind of most popular best vote getter party. Uh, it's interesting to note that in the 2016 uh, presidential election, which is the first time Moldova had direct presidential elections in, in a while, the socialist party head Igor Dodon almost lost to Maya Sandu, who's a, another uh, important political figure who we'll, t- who we'll talk about in a bit. But if we talk about the post-2009 setup, you had the communists, you had the Democrat Party, PD, which was headed by, well, the sort of old guard figures, Dmitry Dyakov, Marian Lupu was the kind of front man for a while, and the person who the party put forward as, as its uh, candidate uh, in, in a couple of, on a couple of occasions. Um, but really, the party had been run by um, Vlad Plachetniuk, who's sort of a businessman, oligarch. And in a lot of ways, the most powerful figure in Moldovan politics for most recent past. Right. The interesting story of the post-2009 developments is how that came to be. You know, what happened really after 2009 was you had parties of the of the European, I, I would say now, nominally pro-European alliance, although at the time there were no scare quotes and there was no irony. There was actual hope and kind of optimism, which which is is a reason why. And these are the parties around Plachetniuk. Well, the around one, part, one, one party was Plachetniuk's party and the other party was um, former Prime Minister Vlad Filat's mm-hmm. um, Liberal Democratic Party. Um, and then a third party was the Liberal Party, which is sort of a Romanian nationalist party um, headed by a guy named uh, Mihai Gimpu. And by Romanian nationalist, you mean in favor of unity with Romania? Yeah, I mean, that that became a more explicit part of the Liberal Party's platform as it was in its decline, but it was always sort of, that was always sort of their core electorate. There's there's always been, since Moldova's independence, um, you know, a, a range of 10 to 20 percent of the population that sort of would just say, yes, we should be part of Romania. That's the historical truth, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, a, that's a... That would also be a shortcut into the EU. Well, that's, this is what's interesting is, is in, in more recent years, um, what you saw was actually the development of what I referred to as pragmatic unionism rather than kind of idealistic unionism, where, whereas previously you had the, the sort of the romantics, the people who would write songs about it and engage in potentially bloody power struggles for it. What so you have, what you, right, what you had more, more recently was, and there was, then there were even um, Romanian sponsored guerrilla marketing campaigns with um, stickers and graffiti in Chisinau that would, with slogans like um, unification means better roads, unification means better <laughs> healthcare, et cetera. Um, and so that was, a, that was a very powerful um, draw. I think what's Which happened- Which is striking because among the countries in the EU, Romania ranks pretty low on all of those indicators. Yes. Uh, indeed. You know, the Romania-Moldova relationship is a fraught one. Um, I think it's definitely had an impact on the way people in Washington see Moldova because I think... Um, well, there's a backstory here, right? Which is that what is modern Moldova? Most of it was at one time part of Romania. That's correct. Um, and it was part of Romania during the interwar period, um, X, the region that's referred to as Transnistria. Transnistria. Um, and other details, which you'd have to refer to Wikipedia maps for. Um, <laughs> which but are very useful sometimes. They can be. They can be. Although, um, as anybody who's worked in the Caucasus knows, once people start getting out the historical maps, you can pretty much uh, abandon hope of uh, <laughs> having having any kind of movement in the discussion. But, um, of course, the territory currently known as the Republic of Moldova was part of the Russian Empire for 100 mm-hmm. years before it was part of Romania. And, and, you it was know, part of the Ottoman Empire. Right, exactly. And there's, so, there's a complicated... 
complicated history. So it has it has a very complicated history, and and um, there are folks who have narratives about the inevitability of you know Moldova becoming part of the Russian world. There are folks who have narratives about the inevitability of it becoming part of Romania again. And I think what's you know the the most salient point about that uh, for our discussion is probably that right now in this particular moment where you have a, an unprecedented coalition of forces which have sort of opposite geopolitical valences. So you have the Party of Socialists, which mm-hmm. is, as I mentioned before, a pro-Russian party. Right, this and, is Dodon's party. Right, Dodon's party. And then you have the the Akum coalition, which is Maya Sandu's PAS Party for Action and Solidarity and Andrei Nastase's Dignity and Truth platform. So those two forces have come together, the socialists being explicitly pro-Russian. I mean, Dodon has made so many trips to Moscow that it's, uh, <laughs> you wouldn't lose his count. Um, and, and he was, you know, on his campaign billboards, has consistently been uh, featured in photographs with Putin. So that's mm-hmm. clearly his pitch to his base. Um, whereas on the, on, the, on the other side of the coalition, you have the key figure being the Prime Minister Maya Sandu, who was a Harvard-educated World Bank alum and really a, a, an extremely competent technocrat who was education minister in 20, I want to say 2012, 2014 range under one of the Filat governments. So I think, I think what's important to think about now is how those historical debates provided the fodder for a really toxic political culture, given the political elites cover uh, to do, uh, this is sort of maybe taxi driver wisdom, but I think there is a lot of truth to it, which is that- There often is a lot of truth right, to taxi I mean, they're, driver. They're, you know, they're, they're out there with the people which is that those debates about what should we, what language should we speak? But even mm-hmm. in Moldova, it even gets down to what should we call the language? Right. Is it Romanian? Uh, is it right. Moldova? And, should and, we write it in Cyrillic or in Latin? Sure. All those debates are, of course, important. And it would be arguably much better for the country and for its viability and success as a state if there was more consensus internally on those things. However, they've been used really as kind of political distractors right. um, where, people you know, start talking about people start talking about the flag when when they should be, you know, watching the national wallet. Yeah, exactly. Banks in Cyprus. Exactly. Um, the, the history I would leave to the historians, and, and I think it's, it's certainly important and um, it drives, it's the motivation for many people who are involved in, in Moldova and in Moldovan politics, but I think it's, it's kind of a... Um, it's sort of a, a distraction from the real issues. The real issues are that what happened, to get back to the question that you asked about what happened in the last 10 years, what happened really is that in the name of realism and you know increasingly kind of pro forma progress on reforms and in the interests of having folks in charge of the country who would say the right things to the West, the West really kind of looked the other way on a lot of governance issues that became increasingly problematic. And so and by governance issues, you mean so a uh, number of things, right? I'm I'm being too uh, too diplomatic. Um, <laughs> very questionable high court decisions um, in recent years uh, in favor of Mr. Plutnyuk and his party. Very questionable administration of the 2014 parliamentary elections, in which a clone party that used the Communist Party's slogan and its name with one word changed, despite a judicial decision striking them from the ballot, was allowed to stay on the ballot and absorbed, I think, roughly 5% of the votes that otherwise would have gone right. to the Communist Party. This is the thing you see in a number of post-Soviet countries where you know, the idea is you confuse the voters and they think right. they're voting for the real Communist Party, but they're actually voting for the, the fake Communists. Exactly. It was, it was the Party of Communists of the Republic of Moldova and PCRM being the acronym, and then the fake party was the Party of Communists (parentheses) Reformers of Moldova, so yeah. also PCRM. And this sounds like a uh, the setup for a Monty Python sketch. There are a lot of things 
a lot of vignettes about Moldovan politics that would be very funny, except that the, the outcome is, is pretty tragic, which is, um, you know, one of the poorest countries in Europe, many, many people growing up in extreme poverty. And, and it does make you wonder, you know, what the next generations of voters, you know, who will they be composed of? Because right. what, what the situation you have now is actually rampant kind of absentee parenting because of labor migration, children being raised by their older siblings, by grandparents. When you talk about labor migration from Moldova, where is most of that too? I think it's still the case that it's split fairly evenly between Russia and the EU. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was there was a lot of talk, or perhaps I was simply following the issue more closely a few years ago, and I remember some interesting analyses of how the the migration patterns are somewhat gendered, where you have manual laborers going to Russia, mm-hmm. including some high-value work or higher-value work, you know, on like oil and other natural resource um, facilities, and then folks doing domestic work in Moscow, folks doing you know apartment repairs in Moscow, whereas the folks who go to the EU, considered to be more female, uh, statistically speaking, they go to do caring professions, you know, right. nannies, um, old old age, yeah. right, um, old age care, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the statistics are are pretty astounding. I don't think I think it's still the case that nobody really has a handle on it. But you know, by any measure, it's probably at least a third of the working age population. And um, one sort of zooming way out and talking about Moldova's kind of viability as a state is if it was true a couple of years ago, and I think the, this is a, probably a fairly accurate, accurate reflection that 20% of those surveyed would say Moldova should become part of Romania. 30% of those surveyed would say, if I had the opportunity to leave this country, I would it leave would. tomorrow. <laughs> so then you have, th- then you ask yourself the question about political engagement. Mm-hmm. Who gets engaged in public politics when people have sort of checked out. Yeah, they've sort of divorced themselves from from the idea even of the country. Right. I'm sure I'll be forgiven for for uh, betraying a long ago confidence, but you know, one jest that I heard on the eve of Europe Day in Chisinau some years ago um, you was don't have to say who I, I certainly won't um, was was that the real way for the EU to stand up for European values would be to have a nighttime mission where members of the EU dates diplomatic missions would go out to various courthouses and police precincts and take down the European flags that were hanging there in Moldova because unfortunately the administration of justice had really come to be seen even by representatives of the EU in the country as not representative of you know right. what the goals were. Right. So if this is what being European means, then maybe we don't want it. Exactly. And that's and that's the kind of I mean it's the same, you know, when when um you know, Victoria Newland ill-advisedly posed for a photo with Mr. Plakatnyuk some years ago. It was a moment that I'm sure happens many times, that kind of moment, and it's sort of a blip. However, when the man you're posing with has four or five media outlets in the country and right. decides and to put it on... an appreciable percentage of the country's GDP. Right, and decides to put it on full blast that, hey, look, this means the Americans have my back. Um, and actually, to this day, there's some speculation about, you know, where has Mr. Plakatnyuk fled to, and is he in the United States, perhaps, or is he in London, or is he somewhere else? So... Let's come to this because, again, the reason we're talking about Moldova now, even though, you know, we'd always be happy to talk about Moldova <laughs> with you, is that there was this political transition and Plahotniuk, who had been the most powerful, influential and wealthiest person in the country for quite some time, left and frankly disappeared. And not only did he disappear and not only was the government reshuffled, but it involved the United States, Europe, Russia all playing a role in this. And that's kind of unprecedented in this part of the world. 
that's true. And actually, you know, for some Moldovans who who don't like the outcome of uh, or the sort of process that's taking place now, they refer back to, you know, the Molotov-Ribbentrop era <laughs> when, you know, when we were divided up kinds of, um, but it's just an example of how people throw the incendiary right. historical things into the mix um, when you're trying to have a discussion about what's happened in the recent past and where to go from here. Yeah, I mean, the polls use that analogy too when they talk about right. Nord Stream. Right, right, right. So uh, the elections took place in February. There wasn't really any obvious coalition. And basically what happened was that Plachetniuk's Democrat Party was in a situation where neither of the other two big groupings wanted to form a coalition with it. Either the authentic pro-European or the pro-Russian socialists. Correct. Yeah. Neither of those forces, and for different reasons, there was some public pressure applied, um, including on Kisilev's show, sort of criticizing Plachetniuk and and sort of... um, Kisilev being the sort of Kremlin affiliate media personality in Russia. Right. Uh, and then it became even more visible when Dmitry Kozak, who, who's, um, you know, I think he's a deputy prime minister now, but he has a very resonant role in the in the Moldovans' conception of their historical relations with Russia because he was involved in the 2003 negotiations, which led right up to a an almost signed settlement plan of the Transnistria conflict. So Kozak came back. He said things like, if the Moldovan people want a pro-European government, then they should have one. Uh, that's not a direct quote, but words to that effect. Yeah. And what remains to be seen is whether this was a tactical move because, uh, you know, Mr. Plachetniuk became so troublesome Toxic. for the Russians or yeah, whatever word you want to use. And there's and there's all kinds of different speculations one could have about, about why that would be the case. Mr. Plachetniuk certainly uh, has had dealings with the Russians in the past and probably throughout his career. Um, you don't get to be the wealthiest oligarch in a post-Soviet country without having had some dealings with the Russians. Right. And be allegedly involved in fairly large money laundering schemes, which acquired uh, and involved the complicity of Russian banks, Russian officials, etc. However, in recent years, there, there, you know, the Russians have opened criminal cases against him. And he has also been very vocal in speaking out against the Russians. And um, I think he even alleged there were a number of people arrested a couple of years ago, and it was alleged that there was an assassination plot against him by the Russians. Um, it's not clear if that was just kind of his positioning. The way that his narrative was lining up vis-a-vis the Russians was actually very similar to Poroshenko's Mm -hmm. narrative. And I think that's not an accident because Poroshenko is also an oligarch um, who actually has, you know, spent his formative years in Bender, in Transnistria. So, you know, this is this is a, a I don't want to say it's a unique political culture, but it's a special political culture. So what do we know about the interactions between the Russian and European and American representatives that led to Plahotniuk's decision to leave into the formation of the new government? Well, that's a good question. I mean, se- sequentially, the new government was formed and then for a week... Um, there were two governments. There were two governments or there was two groupings of people claiming to be the government. And Mr. Plekhanyuk actually didn't leave the country until a week after the, the Maya Sandu government was was formed. Without getting into too much of the TikTok, it is the case that there were senior U.S., Russian, and EU officials in Chisinau the week before the new government was formed. I believe that was the first week of June. And so there was some speculation that they would be talking about what would be the best kind of coalition and should there just be early elections again. I think the sense on the er- on doing early elections again is that it's inefficient and was would not likely lead to a different outcome. Also, it's the case that the election, the whole election setup, there's really kind of a lot of detail to talk about here if you want to get into it, um, was actually changed last year. The idea now is that it's going to be changed back and the elections will be run under the old non-mixed pure party list parliamentary system. So you could have a whole array of footnotes there. 
but we'll elide them. So in terms of the in terms of the for whatever you would want to call it, I don't know, great power interactions, <laughs> um, external stakeholder interactions. Well, this is Russian roulette after all. We have of to course, talk about yeah, the yeah, Russians. Of course, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, Kozak gave an interview about his conversation with Mr. Plekhanov in Kishinev the, during the first week of June, in which um, he alleged that you know Plekhanov offered to make a deal with the Russians. Now that's the word of a senior Russian state official, so take it for what you will. Right. I mean, take it however you will. I think it's not an incredible statement to me because um, what seemed to be the case in the final days of PD's, of Plekhanyuk's party sort of asserting its leadership of the country, they made a number of moves, which actually would lead me to say that in the end, it was their own actions that led to their having to leave the scene. I, I, I mean, certainly there were discussions among the stakeholders, but I actually like to not take the agency away from the Moldovans. Mm-hmm. Many of my Moldovan friends, you know, would like to have the agency taken away from them <laughs> and would love to say, oh, this was all the uh-huh. work of the Russians or the work of the Americans. Right. But, but in We're fact, too dysfunctional. Somebody needs to come in and right, sort this but, out. And, you know, it is, it is of course, important to, um, you know, continue to pay attention to what goes on in Moldova. But, but really, based on all public information, the Party of Democrats was trying to make a deal with whoever they could make a deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you saw in the middle of June... 11th or so, there was this strange announcement from the Philippe self-proclaimed government, if I may use a (laughs) scare quote type of term, that Moldova would be moving its embassy in Israel to Jerusalem and that it would give the United States this huge plot of land in downtown Chisinau, which is sort of the ruins of a former Republican stadium for an increased uh, size embassy, um, which is something that's been under discussion for at least a year now. So to me, that actually was a moment when I said, aha, they're actually showing a little bit of weakness with the sort of outward desperation of Uh telegraphing that publicly. And, you know, I think in a way where folks who govern in that way play themselves is they wish to seek affiliation with and some kind of notional protection from the United States by asserting that they control the situation. But what that means is that when then they they can no longer show that they control the situation, then um, they have to deal with their own logic, which is that they're no longer uh, desirable partners. So, you know, it's a really unfortunate situation because there were are a lot of talented people working in the Democrat Party organization because it was, you know, the party of power for a while. It was a place that was known to have professional management. And in fact, you know, that's probably why Plekhanyuk was able to do it. He he sort of outmaneuvered the other players, uh, Mr. Filat, who's in jail, and Mr. Veronin, whose party was basically 20 deputies from his party were kind of bought out from under him after the 2014 parliamentary elections. So it's an it's interesting to watch the demise of that kind of a system. However, I think it's important not to put any of this in the past tense. Mm-hmm. It's still unclear what's really going to happen. Um, and the, the, the well, so now just to sort of bring sure. things up to date. Mm-hmm. So Plahotniuk has left. PD government is gone, and we have a coalition that's not really a coalition between the socialists and the ACUM. Well, it's a real coalition in the sense that they formed a government together. They agreed on ministers. They've agreed on mechanisms to appoint uh, people to key security positions. They've uh, succeeded perhaps just by force of conscience and shame, although <laughs> those, those are concepts which lost value for some of the Moldovan political elite in recent years. On June 26th, uh, I think was the day when the all the members of the Constitutional Court, the, the chairman of the Constitutional Court had resigned several days previously. And that's actually a big deal because that was sort of um, difficult to resolve procedures for getting them out. However, they were recognized as a big issue. If you consider just the most basic U.S. Um, official talking point on Moldova, it's, well, we want the elections to be run in a system that has integrity. And what we've seen with the mm-hmm. courts in Moldova is that 
if they can overrule or not certify election results, then that actually undermines the whole system, no matter how the how well or poorly the elections are administered and the votes are counted. Sort of the next level uh, beyond right. Stalin's old thing about who counts the votes is, you know, who who certifies the results. Okay, so now we have a government between two parties whose basic outlooks diverge in fundamental ways. What's your thought about what that means for political stability, but also about this maneuvering that Moldova has long undertaken between Europe and Russia? So I think it's important to point out that it's actually it's two forces that have formed the coalition. So it's the Akum bloc and the socialists. But Akum itself consists of two parties, which also are rather different. And I would say always made for strange bedfellows in my mind. So on the one hand, you have squeaky clean technocrat Maya Sandu and her team, which includes a number of Western educated folks with experience in international financial institutions and other sort of the types of people that by default Washington and Brussels would like to see yeah. in houses of government. And then you have, um, and that's the the PAS um, or uh, Party for Action and Solidarity that Maya Sandu has sort of created and grown over in, in recent years and really kind of a, a long and patient slog. Heroic is, is, a, is a word that gets thrown around too often, but it's really, you know, I've been impressed with their tenacity because it's not been easy and there has been a lot of, there were a lot of efforts to sort of harass them, break them up and create difficulties for them. Platforma Da, which is Andre Nastase's group that's also part of the Akum bloc, they sort of come from a different set of backgrounds. And for the most part, these are folks who had been previously in Moldovan state institutions or in the government. Uh, and I would say, you know, just broadly speaking, have kind of a more checkered past than the, than the Maya Sandu team. And it's important because uh, Mr. Nastase is now the Minister of Internal Affairs, so he will be um, presumably taking a large role in reforming law enforcement uh, agencies. And I think when we talk about what's to come and how this is as yet, I would say, an, um, you know, if it's a revolution or as one of my Moldovan friends referred to it, a silent revolution, it says yet an unfinished revolution because we don't know what's going what's gonna to be the result. And if the result is selective firing, selective imprisonment, replacement of people with personal cronies, et cetera, then we'll just be set up for another cycle of what we've just experienced. And so, you know, my very strong personal hope and, and goal really is to keep folks focused right now on how to do the process of reforming the institutions and kind of taking out the trash in terms of the particularly toxic individuals who were involved in justice by telephone and, and other types of... Um, That's like when the judge picks up the phone and... Or the, when somebody picks the, up the phone to the judge, the right. calls the judge and says, <laughs> says hey, it should be, 20 years in prison it for should this go guy. down this way. Yeah. Um, you have those two forces which you know came together in opposition to Plachetniuk a couple of years ago. And then you have Dodon socialists, which they formed a coalition. So I would say it's a real coalition. The question is, what should the goals of such a coalition be? And I think... You know, realistically, they've already done some of the what they refer to as the de-oligarchization set of laws where they've undone some of the laws that were passed in the most recent parliamentary session that um, I believe it was, a you know, the, the sort of amnesty of capitals type of law. It's often passed to give people with ill-gotten wealth a, a reset. Mm -hmm. um, not clear if that's going to really have any impact since the law was already passed. They've undone, I think, or in the process of undoing the, the election law changes. Mm -hmm. And they've the parliament has set up several um, special committees to investigate certain aspects of the previous government. You know, I can go into details on that. It, it's a little bit lengthy, but what's going to come next is really unclear still, um, because other people have said with certain finality that, well, you know, Mr. Plachetniuk is gone. Well, he's not in the country. He's currently um, gone. Right. He, he may come back. 
back. He may seek to come back if, you know, if he retains access to his funds and to and the ability to sort of freely transfer them in and out of Moldova, then he has a potential to have a lot of influence for many years because political influence is not that expensive. So a highly motivated individual with a large amount of mostly ill-gotten money can, you know, can stick around and probably do a lot mm-hmm. if if that's uh, if that's allowed to happen. So we haven't talked much about Transnistria, but how has all of this political, maybe upheaval is too strong a word, but political turnover affected the situation in Transnistria? And does the fact that you had Europeans, Americans, and Russians all coming together in a certain sense to facilitate this transition mean anything when it comes to dealing with the Transnistria problem? Right. There's a lot of speculation about what the Russians' angle is on Transnistria. And actually, this was a big um, talking point that Mr. Plekhanyuk and his team were using in the week when they were sort of trying to stay in charge, which which was that this new coalition will lead to federalization of Moldova, which has sort of become a, it's sort of the F word of Moldovan uh, politics, haha, because it harkens back to this busted deal with uh, Kozak. Kozak in 2003 and the idea that Russia would insist uh, in any settlement on a federal structure which would give the Transnistrian autonomy certain veto powers mm-hmm. over Moldova's fundamental right. decisions. It's another one of these kind of false dichotomies or, or sort of made up arguments because it's, you know, in the kind of classic version of this heated debate, the actual parameters of quote unquote federalization are not discussed. And of course, as we know, federalization can mean many, many, many right. different things. So there is some speculation that Russia wants to push a deal. Most opti- to effectively reintegrate Transnistria under terms. Right, right. And and most optimistically, that would be, you know, this is a reset for Russia-West relations. This is potentially something, and this is why it scares some people and kind of spurs others to action. It, it could be potentially, if it's done right, a template for a Ukraine settlement. Right. I wouldn't speculate too much on that. I think each of those places are they're very different contexts and the geography where you know Russia has a border with one and not mm-hmm. with the other. The fact that Russia is now pretty isolated from Transnistria or Transnistria from Russia has meant that the Transnistrians have actually started trading much more with Europe. Um, the EU made available to Transnistria the benefits of the association, deep, of the association agreement and the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement that it signed with Moldova in 2014. Those Some of those benefits were made available to Transnistria under certain terms and they've taken advantage of them. Uh, it's also the case that there had been some interesting progress in recent years. Um, Scuttlebutt is that that's a result of the sort of shadow oligarchs who run Transnistria, in particular, Mr. Gushan, who runs the sheriff conglomerate that runs many of the value producing, if not most of the value producing businesses in Transnistria, um, had been, you know, making deals with uh, Mr. Plotnik and his team. So what's likely the case, although I'm speculating, is that the Transnistrians are now in a bit of an uncertain situation. They have new people to deal with in Ukraine. Uh, new people to deal with in Moldova. They may not be sure about what the new rules of the game are, and so I think it's I think it's wait and see. The guy who the new government has on the file, um, Vasily Shova, is probably the best person to be on the file. He's worked on this issue for twenty some years. He's probably one of the most honest Moldovan government officials who I've ever met or interact, interacted with. But his school of thought, I think, is hope that the Transnistria can become the subject of a grand bargain. Mm-hmm. I hope that could be true, assuming that it happens on terms that are reasonable and that protect Moldova's sovereignty. But what I fear is that it's just it's never going to rise high enough on the list of priorities. So, you know, Trump and Putin are meeting. Right. Are they going to talk about Transnistria? Seems unlikely. If they do, if it's pushed aggressively by the Russians, then everybody sort of will have a, oh, oh. 
what are right. they trying to get out of this? Their, What's the hustle yeah, actually, yeah, <laughs> type exactly. of thing? Um, because the tr- because the level of trust is really, I think, so low right now. Um, so I'm inclined to just take a wait and see attitude. Nobody's selling the farm on Transnistria yet. There aren't any deals being made. You know, if if there can be a process where folks keep keep talking and keep meeting, so that there's not any unexpected escalation of tensions and there's not any kind of breakdown in Transnistrian's ability to do business and to sort of live mm-hmm. normally as they have been as normally as you can live in an unrecognized territory. I think that would probably be the best course until you can have new elections run in Moldova. You know, once the system has been cleaned, then, you know, Transnistria always seems to be next on the agenda, right? Oh, we have to get through these elections. Oh, we have to get through this crisis. That's kind of plagued the settlement efforts in which I was involved for several years. And so I know this uh, painfully well. But it's funny because when I was in Chisinau, people were saying, oh, what do you think about Transnistria? Because that was always a certain issue that I would be talking to people about. And I said, actually, I think what's most important right now is to fix the system in Moldova because what actually is the case is that the good faith folks in Transnistria who realize, hey – you know, just look at the geography. Russia's not going to come save us. We need to figure out a way to, you know, be part of Moldova in a way that'll let us preserve whatever particular linguistic and other rights we want to insist on. But what the Transnistrians, once you get them that far in the conversation, what I would often hear from them in re- in past years, and I was there in 2015 when Moldova had something like five different governments, is why would we want to join a country with a political culture like that? Why would we want to join a country where the major political players make agreements and then stab each other in the back publicly six mm-hmm. months later and put each other in jail. You know, that's not a political culture that, right. you know, any elites would necessarily want to sign up to be a part of. And and for the moment, they've, you know, resisted. So yeah. when I think this has been the EU's argument all along to countries like Moldova, but also Georgia, that has its own problem with occupied or unrecognized mm-hmm. territories, get your house in order, yep. become a prosperous, flourishing democracy with rule of law, and people living in those territories are going to be a lot more interested in rejoining under some framework than they are if you're a corrupt, unstable mess. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, I think the EU has done in terms of the carrots that it could offer to Moldova, which, you know, then by extension to the Transnistrians in terms of the visa-free regime and the trade regime, which, as I said, Transnistrian businesses have, have made great use of. I think the EU has done kind of what it can do. Um, at this point, it's, you know, it's a delicate game of not letting people who want to hijack the the news cycle or uh, the political debate in Moldova, of, of not letting them make Transnistria into fodder for some kind of unconstructive debates, which is which has happened mm-hmm. really often in the past. Right. Don't let it get in the way of what otherwise may be positive developments. Right, right. Okay, so we're obviously still very much in the middle of a transitional period, and it's unclear transition to what, obviously. Is there anything that the West, particularly the U.S., since we're sitting in Washington, can do to help push Moldova in a more, let's say, constructive direction? So I think one of the things that's been a hallmark of Western assistance to Moldova has been a lot of talk, a lot of high-minded slogans, which you got to have, but increasingly, you know, not comporting with reality. So the U.S. had extensive justice reform projects in the Republic of Moldova. And so that means that the courtrooms have nice equipment. The judges have all had many trainings, et cetera. However, uh, you know, if the the essence of the judiciary is corrupt, 
then all those things, unfortunately, uh, represent uh, perhaps a well-implemented project, which is you know usually the incentive for the implementer, but they don't necessarily represent any kind of cultural change. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that's happened uh, and that I think we're going to be feeling very acutely now is that one of the consequences of the labor migration and of the emigration, which is of a more permanent nature of uh, highly talented young folks who don't see a future for themselves in Moldova, who maybe don't wish to make a career uh, in a business world where, uh, you know, much of the climbing of the ladder involves, you know, bribing people and potentially yeah, non, non exposing yourself to right, non-rule of law type, the types of types of uh, types of activities. The, the trick now is going to be getting some of those folks to come back um, because the, the real problem, this was something that I saw as, as a huge, huge issue in the Transnistria file when I was working more focused on that, is just a lack of capacity, a lack of people who are dedicated to the work who you know who will be there who have some institutional memory so there's there's some individuals there who have made some of these issues their life's work but there's no you know the state apparatus is very depleted and what's going to happen now is in each of the ministries where the Democrats had identified their own people and sort of given them some special benefits and maybe some unofficial compensation to be particularly loyal to PD and Plachetniuk, those people are going to be marginalized or removed or encouraged to leave. Uh, and and unfortunately, in some in some cases, those were the talented people, right? Because this was actually this was actually Plachetniuk's thing was he he went around and found talented people to get on his team, and then you know sometimes he would pressure them in different ways, um, but sometimes it would just be with positive incentives. You know, once you lose some of those folks, there's really just going to be some serious gaps in terms mm-hmm. of capacity. So what I think the what I think the West can do, and and this is not an entirely original idea, I know. Um, Ambassador William Hill, who's a, who's a sort of a long veteran of, of uh, working on Moldova, um, has also mentioned this, is to provide not just funds, which sort of, you know, you, you airdrop <laughs> bundles of money and, and, you know, equipment and mm-hmm. fancy gadgets or whatever, but to actually provide embedded people to fulfill the stated goals of the new special parliamentary committees to investigate various machinations and schemes involving privatization, to investigate whether the whether it's really an investigation of an investigation, reviewing whether the theft of the billion, which was the sort of legendary embezzlement from... All right, we haven't talked about that. Yeah, from three major Moldovan <laughs> banks in 2014, which resulted in a loss of one-eighth of the country's GDP. That was investigated by a Western investigative firm. And, you know, there's a question which I would say shouldn't call into question the integrity of the of the consulting firm that did the investigation, but you need to always look at what's the source material, mm-hmm. what was given by the client, who was the client in that investigation. And the client was the National Bank of Moldova, which was still being run by arguably people connected mm-hmm. to folks who had facilitated, facilitated this, the this scheme. So um, there's, a, there's a committee that they've uh, established to look into that. So if you think about the complexity of these you know, financial crimes um, that are being alleged and that are being investigated... Those really require resources, um, and and you know you just don't have a huge cadre of forensic accountants mm-hmm. and you know law enforcement professionals um, to do that kind of sifting and review. Various media personalities I see posting on Facebook, but also are publishing articles about how they're receiving all of these materials, all of these kind of either anonymous or otherwise supposed evidence of bad acts. Well, who's corralling those? Who's you know? Kind of, if if the law enforcement agencies still still have the same people in them, other than the very top folks, 
you know, will evidence be destroyed? Will some people be discouraged from coming forward? Mm-hmm. So that's why I feel like this, this Lenin's old question of who benefits. Right, right. This is this is a pretty key, a pivotal moment where this can either be done better or it can be done less well. And I think and so I think the West's role should really be to make available resources for it to be done as well as possible. Mm-hmm. It doesn't and have not to just be financial resources, we're talking about human resources. Right, exactly. It doesn't have to be gold-plated. It doesn't have to be a lot of, you know, a huge amount of money. It's actually putting putting dollar or euro amounts on these uh, aid packages actually is really, you know, distorts things. I remember when the EU announced, "Oh, we're going to have 23 million euros of confidence building aid for you know, the Transnistria Moldova settlement process. Well, how does that actually break down? And mm-hmm. is there actually the absorption capacity for that money? That's a that's a big problem was when you send a money, people are often at a loss as to how to spend it and what to do with it because they don't have the, you know, they're operating in a state of constant chaos. They're operating in a, you know, put out yesterday's fire um, Today, mode. before you start dealing right. with and, and And so there's not a lot of time that these folks have to sort of step back and say, oh, what would we do with this assistance? So donor coordination is going to be really important, finding somebody. Uh, and actually, that's a function that the West could could play. They could try to find, you know, I don't know if you set up a structure for that or if you just have somebody playing that role informally who's matching up the needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's also an onus that's on the Moldovan new Moldovan government is to identify those needs. Where do they have gaps? Where would they need experts? And they they've have a longstanding relationship with the EU on this point. But for some things, for example, with the parliamentary committees, the EU has an institution of high-level policy advisors that are embedded with a number of ministries in Moldova that's been – they do this with other Eastern partnership countries as well. But those advisors are not available to parliament because parliament is viewed under that program as a political body Mm. which should not benefit from that kind of technocratic assistance. So that's a perfectly valid position on the part of the donor. However, it means we need to look into what other resources might be available, what other programs can be tapped into, and I think it has to be done rapidly. I mean, it can't be a six-month lead yeah. time. By that time, the game's going to be over, and people will either have – there either will have been a process that is generally regarded as having been, oh, okay, they really did get a bunch of those guys out. Some of them went to jail. We feel like now we can have a little bit of a reset and maybe allow ourselves to have some room for hope again. Or it's going to be, oh, oh, I remember that June so-called revolution that really wasn't a big change right. because, you know, six months later, half of the, the same, same people were back again. The same thing was going on as soon as the, the dust settled. Right. So so I think I think it's important to, you know, for the West to be very clear that that, that is a priority, that this sort of um, – you know the the kind of realism, and I think this is this is a, I know we're short on time, but it's for me it's the most important global point for U.S. foreign policy that comes out of my work and work in and study of Moldova is you think that you're doing a smart realist thing by saying okay well you're you know you've said that you're basically on our side so you can push the envelope a little bit okay a little bit more okay a little bit more when you when you allow that to happen and you don't really pay close attention to it all of a sudden um, you find that the person that you regarded as your client in this case Mr. Plekhanyuk is actually playing you for a fool and so it's bad it's you know I have this this approach that I'm sort of conceptualizes realism as idealism or idealistic <laughs> realism which is that if you just especially in a place like Moldova where there's not a lot of big resources to battle over or or you know financial I mean they they had to monetize the judiciary and financial system right which is the only you know the the way that they managed to make money out of the country for the US really to just step to it and say these are the standards we have 
This is what we demand. And for a long time, the feeling was, well, gee, there's nobody powerful enough who could step into the void. Um, and you know, now we've seen that the Moldovans have figured out how to create a cross geopolitical coalition that'll hold for some period of time. Not everybody is doing that in good faith. Not everybody is, you know, it's politics. Right. Um, so there's going to have to be a lot of close attention, I think. It really is important for the domestic politics to have foreign stakeholders engaged. And I sort of wish that wasn't the case. But at this point, it's hard to see, you know, how, how it could be different. Yeah. Well, and I think the idea that there's a window of opportunity is an important one because that's one of the things that we often struggle with in mm -hmm. terms of thinking about how to engage with these countries that are going through pretty rapid changes. We have our own processes. We have our own right. debates. We have to figure out what things are going to be priorities and when. And by the time that we get our own house in order, that's right. sometimes the agenda's moved on. Everything's so I think that's already settled. And, yeah. you know, meanwhile, we're seeing Georgia this week and all kinds of other, you know, right. everything else pops off. Um, so the crisis du jour, you know, tomorrow is going to appear. And, right, right. You know, if by that point we haven't focused on or, or been engaged in places like Moldova, the opportunity may have passed. Indeed. All right. Lyndon, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. Okay, thank you uh, for joining us. That's it for the show today. Uh, you can find a link to Lyndon's bio in the show notes. Uh, and there's also a link there to a piece that he co-wrote on the recent ouster of Moldova's ruling party. Um, also, your reminder, uh, if you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, enjoy, sign up, spread the word. Uh, also, send us your mailbag questions. We are very soon going to do another mailbag segment. Uh, you can email them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. Uh, also, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me directly at Dr. J. Mankoff. Um, and finally, uh, before we close, just would like to extend a big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. And that includes, uh, first and foremost, our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for joining. See you again, or talk to you again in two weeks. <laughs>